pray together, and then we will, we will look at this passage before us. Father, Lord, we come before you now, and we're reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul, who said that he had the sentence of death within him, and that he was so overwhelmed by his tribulations and his afflictions that God, uh, Lord, you put him in such a place that he could only look to you, and, and it just seemed as if all hope was lost there, and and. and and, and Paul says very explicitly the reason why you put your children through trials such as those is so that they would not trust in themselves but on you who raises the dead. And ultimately, Lord, we can hope for temporal relief. We can hope for temporal healing. We can pray for temporal uh, resolutions to our earthly trials and problems. But, 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 but Lord, you and your wisdom instruct us to put our trust in he who raises the dead to remind us that our ultimate hope is rooted in the resurrection uh, and not in any sort of momentary relief. And, uh, but, Lord, we pray that you would mercifully have mercy on our brother Joseph and Lena and their children, Lord, as this has been a very, very taxing season. And uh, we just pray that you would lead him to the right doctors and we just pray that you would open up a pathway uh, so that we can make progress here and find some sort of answers for our brother and however you would want to use the church, both the local and universal church and the local churches in his area that know him. Lord, however you would want to work, Lord, we pray for mercy now. And we ask that you would help us, Lord, as we look at this passage of Scripture and to remind us of our great hope that we have in our Redeemer. Lord, we're grateful that we are given such a glorious gospel, such a good news that in the face of so much darkness and calamity, suffering and affliction, that we have a hope that is immovable, unshakable, and that a hope that is sure, and uh, Lord, a hope that is reserved for us in heaven. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would help us now to see the glory of the light of your Son, Lord, and that he would shine upon us. Lord, we pray now these things in Jesus' name, amen. Man, you may be seated. <clears throat> well, in uh, Isaiah chapter 9, which I didn't even read. I'll read it for us. <laughs> I'll just read, us, I'll read the text. We're looking at verses 1 through 5, and this is what the text says if you want to follow along. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden, the staff over their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, a cloak rolled in blood, and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for fire. Well, unmistakable that this passage has to do with Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of these messianic promises are found in the advent of the Redeemer. And so, with that in mind, what we're looking at here is the person and work of 
our mediator, Jesus Christ. And in giving us this ancient prophecy, uh, Isaiah is going to ascribe three different aspects of the Redeemer's work and what we can call his universal salvation, his spiritual illumination, and his final triumph. Now, what's glorious about that is that each one of these aspects of the prophecy concerning Emmanuel, or as verse 6 will go on to say, the child that will be born, is that each one of these aspects is a different aspect of salvation. And so first, the idea that when Jesus comes and the work that he did and the redemption that he accomplished will result in universal salvation, we are speaking here about the scope of salvation, the scope of our salvation. Now, when I say universal salvation, I do not mean universalism, which means that everyone will be saved in the end. That is not what theologians refer to when they speak of universal salvation in association to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What we mean is that this salvation will be Jew and Gentile alike, not limited to the people of Israel anymore, and that makes a lot of sense given the context here, because if you remember, on the heels of this text, chapter 8 left us in a place of doom and gloom, literally, because darkness and gloom and anguish will result from the captivity of and the exile of the Jews at this point. But now the, uh, the, 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 the prophet Isaiah looks into the future, and as he sees into the future, he sees that there's coming a time in which gloom and anguish will be done away with, and he brings up peculiar tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali are situated between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean, kind of sandwiched in between that little land, that little strip of land between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean. There is Zebulun, Naphtali right there, and squished in between that little section was something of an ancient melting pot at this time. In other words, what could be found in that region was all sorts of nationalities. There were all sorts of Assyrians, Arameans, Mesopotamians that were uh, uh, that populated the area there along with the Jews in that area. And so what Isaiah sees is that that is almost becoming emblematic of what God will do. And the reason why Naphtali and Zebulun were despised at those times was because, well, eventually from Judah's perspective, that became part of the northern kingdom that was, uh, that was ultimately uh, done away with and that when the kingdom split apart, but also because of the presence of these Hittites, Mesopotamians, Canaanites, Arameans, everything was found there at the time. And so the background on, on this is that there is a great hostility that exists during the time of Isaiah. And in Isaiah's time, this hostility is between Jew and Gentile. This becomes very, very important for the way that the New Testament is going to understand the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That we read the Bible coming from our modern sort of mentality, our American mindset, and we open the Bible and we begin to read about Jew and Gentile. And to us, it's sort of curious and we kind of wonder, well, what's the big deal Jew and Gentile? I don't really even talk like that. We don't really go around talking about Jew and Gentile. Uh, well, maybe a Jew will, but really, if you're just a typical you know, American, you're not really categorizing things along Jew and Gentile. 
But if you think about the biblical worldview, everything has to do with Jew and Gentile. Everything is either you are in the covenant community or you are outside of the covenant community. Either you're in covenant with God, which you're in the Jewish community, and you are in that, and because of that, you are, you are privileged with the promises, with the covenants, you are privileged with the, uh, with the sacrificial system so that there is a provision for atonement and sin, but everything outside of that is considered profane and unclean and, uh, and, and covenantally uh, cut off from God. And therefore, as Isaiah begins to see into the future now and prophetically speaking about the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, he touches on this issue of Jew and Gentile, specifically that there is coming a time in which Zebulun, Naphtali, though they were treated with contempt, there's coming a time in which he will make the land glorious. And so much so that he says, basically, even Galilee of the Gentiles, which to a Jewish mind sounds outlandish. And um, you can see the fulfillment of all these things, of course, in two ways. And speaking about Galilee, you have both a messianic movement and you have a redemptive movement. From the messianic angle, Jesus is going to fulfill all of this. So let me give you a text. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Obviously, when this comes to fulfillment, uh, this is the passage that the apostles point to. Now, when Jesus, this is Matthew 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of, watch this, Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, or through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light and those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we understand that Jesus fulfills this prophecy messianically in his birth, in his advent, and in his movement from Nazareth to Galilee where he began his ministry but from the redemptive angle, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. That really is sort of the culmination of all of it. Ephesians chapter 2 gives us, in a sense, the total picture as it is crystallized, not just in the life of Jesus, but in the application of his redemption to both Jew and Gentile. And this is why a passage like this prompted one scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, to say that there has never been a greater distinction or a greater uh, sort of chasm between two people in the history of humanity than Jew and Gentile. And so that we, we need to understand that to understand what did Jesus accomplish in his redemption and bringing those two groups together. Uh, it is as monumental as it gets. And so with that understanding, Paul says in Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, that's the Ephesians, in the flesh who are called 
uncircumcision, which is a pejorative word meaning unclean, basically, covenantally unacceptable and unclean, by the so-called circumcision. Now, watch the so-called is because in light of the new covenant work of Christ, the circumcision has changed. So now it is the so-called circumcision, a reference to the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We should stop there to understand the plight of the Gentiles in Galilee at this time. The plight of the world. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 147. It is amazing to me how Christians often try to grapple with the subject of election because I don't think we quite, we quite comprehend just how dark and how dismal the world was prior to the gospel. What I'm saying is I think we minimize the fact that the whole world lay in darkness at this time. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I, I think at times we have this ideal in our mind that, 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 that the sin and the fall and the subsequent effects of sin are, are, are sort of less than what the Bible says. And we try to minimize it and we try to make a place for a measure of redemption for the world. We don't want to make it seem as bad as it is. Brothers and sisters, unless you understand the darkness that laid over the world at this time, then you don't understand the beacon of light that shines in the darkness, okay? I, I don't think we have, as Christians even, I don't think we've quite grappled with the masses of humanity that perished. It doesn't, it's not something we, we like to meditate on, in a debate with an atheist, we want to sort of get past that as quickly as possible when they bring out things like, well, Noah's flood. I was watching uh, a debate dealing with that very thing. You know, how can God kill the whole world, save eight people? And to me, I'm thinking, that's just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> you want to read the rest of the Bible, right? Listen to this verse, I, uh, Psalm 147, verse 19 and 20. To understand that this is all rooted in the prerogative of God, we have to grapple with this as Christians. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus, he has not dealt in this way with any other nation. See, see what that's saying there? The great exclusivity of revelation that is meant to be dreadful, folks, that God in his decree ordained that any other nation reside in darkness, lacking revelation, lacking the knowledge of God through his revelation, and therefore exactly what Paul says, 
You were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning you didn't even have access to the civic life of the chosen nation so that you could, in a roundabout way, at least profit from the morals of Israel. You didn't even have that. On top of that, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Little by little, hope is dwindling away. And what Paul is saying, strangers to the covenants of promise meant you had no covenant relationship to God. That's another way of saying, guys, you had no relationship to God. That's the biblical way of saying you had no relationship to God whatsoever, and you had no hope in the promises, or as he says, the covenants of promise, one ultimate promise of redemption. Having no hope and without God in the world. That gets super heavy as you go along. Having no hope as if that's bad enough. Listen to this. Without God. That's even worse. Utter separation from God. And if that's not bad enough, in the world, in the world of darkness, in the dismal world of sin, and unbelief, hostility, blows my mind. I've studied uh, years ago, I was studying um, uh, American Indian culture. The savagery of what was happening here just would blow your mind. And uh, I was listening to lectures on this years years, and just because I was curious, but and to, to listen to the savagery that would go on among the American Indians and how they would literally eat each other's body parts during battle. They would eat each other's organs and brains and stuff to, 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 to try to suck in the power of their enemies. I mean, the paganism, I don't think we comprehend the darkness and the, 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 the utter uh, just depravity of it all. And this is the world exactly as Paul describes it here. Without Christ, without hope, without God in the world. This is why the light of Christ is coming in in the dismal darkness of the Gentile pagan world at that time. We need to firmly understand that to really grasp the good news for how good it is. I think when we think the good news is good news, we so quickly individualize it to ourselves. We so quickly automatically think of the good news and how it relates to my situation and how it helped me and fixed some of my family problems and, you know, and, 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 and helped me out, you know, because I was kind of aimless as a teenager or something like that. Yes, 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 that's true. But it's far more universal than that. It's far more cosmic than that. It's far more reaching than that. Jesus changed everything. But now in Christ, you who formerly were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity that Isaiah is talking about. The enmity that existed between Jew and Gentile, consisting of the law, commandments, contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man. What is going on here? Thus establishing 
peace. What is going on here is that we're witnessing the creation of a new humanity. I love that. I personally just can't get over that. In my studies, my biblical studies, I can't get over what Christ is doing and creating, a fashioning a new world. Don't you want a new world? I want a new world. I look around. I mean, last night I just clicked on the news and saw the stabbing, you know, uh, that happened in New York overnight. I don't know if you're even aware of this, but some guy went into a, a rabbi's house where they were doing a celebration for Hanukkah, goes in there with a machete and just starts cutting people, mowing people down. I mean, just the utter senseless, crazy world that we live in. And it's just like, how much does God have to remind us that we need a new world? And this is what I told Joseph on the phone last night. I said, brother, I remind you, brother, our hope is not in this place. And, uh, and, and it's easy for me to say that because I'm over here and you're over there and you're experiencing that and I'm not experiencing that right now. But, but, but just remind ourselves, brothers and sisters, that, that, that we better start understanding what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter uh, 3. Uh, verse 1, where he says, you know, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated. Uh, I tell you, man, it's so liberating when you do that because you start really seeing your trials in light of the grand perspective of eternity, realizing this is not your home. This is not your home. This is not your final dwelling. This is not where your aspirations are found. This is not the source of your final encouragement. This is not where you're going to get your ultimate happiness uh, this, this world can't provide it for you in whatever, in whatever measure that comes, you know, whatever hopes and dreams you have in this life, you better start really getting in touch with the fact that those, those are temporal, those are temporary, and those are fallen and fallible and shot through with sin. And I remember when Eden was born, how happy we were. And, you know, just uh, as a little girl, about not even two years old, she broke her arm and it was like this perfect little picture that we had, broken, you know, it's like shattered, you know, it's like life is not perfect, you know, life is not perfect. And so this is why it's important for us to really grasp the darkness of this, uh, of this world apart from redemption to really understand and comprehend the cosmic implications of the redemption that Jesus, Jesus brings in the cross because he says he establishes peace. He might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having putting to death the enmity. He came to preach peace to you who were far, far away and peace to those who were near. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting there? Don't, don't miss that. Not just peace to those who are far off. Oh, it's almost like, well, we can understand that. Those who are without God, without hope, separate from Christ, outside of the commonwealth, outside of the covenants, all of that. Why does he come and preach peace to those who are near? Because just because you are near to these things, that doesn't mean that you participate in those things. Just because you are among the covenants of promise, just because you are among the chosen nation, just because you are within the covenant community, that does not mean you actually are experiencing the salvific peace, the redemptive peace that is brought through the blood of the cross. Through him, both of us have our access in one spirit to the Father. What a glorious incredible text and actually the rest of the book of Isaiah will bear this out let me just read a couple scriptures for you this is Isaiah eleven 10. I'll give you these verses 
Because these verses signal the same thing that the Apostle Paul is capturing here. But Isaiah 11, verse 10, In that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, that's Jesus, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. That's Jesus who is to be appointed as a covenant to the people. A reference to the new covenant in his blood, literally. As a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations. Wow, isn't that amazing? Too too small a thing just to go to Israel. You're greater than that. That's what God is saying. You will be a light to the nations so that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Glorious. Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3. Listen to this. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep deep darkness the peoples. Exactly what we're talking about. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. These are all messianic passages dealing with this very thing. Remarkable. The peace that Isaiah envisions is spoken throughout. Look with me to the book of Zechariah. Very quickly here as we move on to the next point. Zechariah chapter 9 shows just the depths of this international, multi-ethnic redemption. And it was a redemption that went beyond what Israel was capable of conceiving. Why? Because their enemies will become their brethren through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 9, beginning in verse 6. Speaking of the same future glorious redemption and hope, Zechariah says, A mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Now, little exegesis here. Philistines being the antecedent of verse 7. I will remove their blood, i.e. the Philistines, from their mouth, their detestable things from between their teeth. In other words, because they eat unclean things as pagans, right? Watch this now. Then they will also be a remnant of our God. That should stagger us. In light of all the remnant theology that we've been reading about in the book of Isaiah, it says now that the Philistines will be a remnant of God. It's like for a Jewish person, I mean, talk about rocking your world. And the, I mean, the Philistines are just, uh, just kind of like the arch enemy of the Jewish people. And here, God is saying they will be a remnant to God. 
No, no, it's further than that. Look at this. They will be like a clan in Judah. If you have a footnote in your Bible to the Hebrew word clan, that's because it can be interpreted as a chieftain, meaning they will have a prominent role among the tribes of Israel. That's inconceivable to the Jewish people at this point. How is God going to take our arch enemies, these pagan, unclean, I think they got blood in their mouth, their te- you know, what would I say, blood in their mouth, they got uh, uh, abominable things in their teeth, they eat unclean food, and yet God is going to raise them up to be a chieftain in our midst? That's incredible. How is that going to happen? Obviously, through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That is the cosmic scope of the redemption of Jesus. Next, it's not just that, but it's more than that. In His work of redemption, Jesus will also bring spiritual illumination. So we move away from the scope of salvation to the phenomenon of salvation. The phenomenon of salvation here captured with the motif with the idea, with the theme and the teaching of light, of light. So going back to Isaiah, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, light will shine upon them. And that is precisely what salvation is. Salvation is the light of God dawning upon you. Brothers and sisters, we have so much cause for celebration. If you are in Christ, don't ever forget the darkness from whence you came, that you sat in sin and misery. And as a matter of fact, as God begins to illuminate us, that's the first thing that He illuminates us to. He makes us sensible to our sins. He uses the terrors of the law to show us our need as a tutor, as a, a schoolmaster, as a, to show us our need for Christ. Here, turn back to the New Testament. Go to Colossians chapter 1 because this redemption consists of a transfer of estates. Go from one sphere to the next, one state to the next, from darkness to light. And um, Colossians chapter 1 reminds us, for He rescued us, this is Colossians 1 verse 13, He rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. The domain of darkness is the domain or the sphere of sin in which we were all in prior to the light of Christ dawning apart upon us. So that understand this, that your neighbor, your family member, your friend, your children Whoever is not in Christ is presently in the domain of darkness. We can sugarcoat it. We can pretend that that's not the case. We could try to ignore it. We can wish that it were less than what it was. But the reality is, is that apart from Jesus Christ, people are literally under the dominion of darkness. They cannot see. They're in a state of spiritual stupor. Their thoughts of God are uh, frustrated and futile. This is, of course, because of sin. I just don't think we understand how depraved man is. It's not that he is utterly depraved. Utter depravity is not what the Bible teaches 
in terms of, of man's sinful condition, but he is totally depraved, absolutely, in every aspect of his being and his motives, his mind, his will, his heart. He is in a sphere. And then on top of that, he lays under the sway, as John says in 1 John chapter 5, says the whole world is under the influence or the sway, literally the Greek text, in the lap of the evil one. Oh, think about that sinister picture that a person outside of Christ is literally sitting on the lap of the evil one, literally sitting in Satan's lap like a puppet, like a, like, just like a, like a, you know, like a toy, and you're just led about. It's this satanic influence over your life. To show the transfer of this estate from darkness, he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. So, because this, this, uh, this transfer of conditions going from one state to the next, it's not just something that happens about you. It's not just something that happens upon you. It's also something that happens within you. Your constitution changes. Your nature changes. And that's what he means in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, when he says, you who were formerly darkness. Wow, that's even more powerful because here, he's not saying you were in darkness. He says you were darkness. After all, where did all that sin come from? <laughs> it's like Jesus said, out of the heart will proceed thefts and lies and adulteries and murders your own heart is producing these things. And so you need a heart change because you are darkness. So darkness stands for the metaphor of sin and the sin nature. And so he says, but now you are light in the Lord. So now you have gone from being darkness to being light. <laughs> when was the last time you told someone you are darkness. Oh, you're not going to make a whole lot of friends that way, but, but when's the last time, or, or to put it in Jesus' terms, when was the last time you told someone that they, that they were evil? When was the last time you told someone they were evil? Not that they do evil or that they are around evil or in evil or participate in evil, but that they are evil. I mean, that's what it means. You were darkness. You were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so the illumination that Jesus brings is first of our sins, second of our hearts, to illuminate us to the truths of his gospel and of the cross. And third, he illuminates our minds by way of renewing us transforming us into his image. And while the sins of the nation, listen to this, the sins of the nations had landed them in the midst of a heathen oppression, complete uh, subjugation. Okay. What's going to happen in Isaiah's time is this. Isaiah or, and, and Judah will go and Israel will go from a time where they experience a melting pot situation in Naphtali and Zebulun to the king of Assyria coming in and literally deporting the Jews out of the land and bringing in an influx of migrants from Assyria and from Aram and from the northern 
pagan countries so that what will happen is that the Jews will be transposed and they will be moved to the pagan land and the pagans will move into their land. See what the problem with that is? The problem with that is, is Abraham. That's the problem. God never loses sight of that. You think God is going to sit idly by and watch the promises that he made to Abraham? That the promised land is going to be lost? That, that, that all these land promises are just going to go out the door? And some, I know some of you are thinking, are we going dispensational here a little bit? No, no I'm not. <laughs> I see those land promises fulfilled in Christ. What I'm saying is that from the covenant community's perspective, the promise is unraveling. It is unraveling. Soon there'll be nothing left. I mean, soon all of Galilee will be populated by Gentiles, and then what happened to the promised people? What happened to the chosen nation, the royal priesthood? It's gone. How is God going to restore the nation? And of course, he restores the nation through Jesus. That is how all of these curses are going to be reversed That's how the curses will be countered. E.J. Young, in his commentary on Isaiah, says this, In place of darkness and of calamity, the people will see the light of peace and blessedness. In place of darkness, they will see, uh, in place of darkness of death, the light of life. In place of darkness of ignorance, the light of knowledge. In place of darkness of sin, the light of salvation. I mean, just take it to a personal level. Aren't you amazed Uh, just taking this phrase here that E.J. Young mentions here, from the darkness of ignorance to the light of knowledge, isn't it amazing how God brings us out of ignorance to knowledge? We were so ignorant. I mean, I, I think, what was I doing before I was saved? I was just a whistler in the dark. And it's amazing you can, you can speak to highly educated and highly intelligent people about God and they reveal their utter ignorance about who he is and the way of salvation and who and what God is. Just, just amazing, amazing, amazing. The epistemic transformation that we go through. But the greatest illumination that Christ brings is the illumination of himself. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Because that is, that is something to see here that, brothers and sisters, we're not, we're not just having our lives changed as Christians. It's not just that we are going from the sphere of darkness to light. It's not that we're just going from ignorance to knowledge. It's not just that we are illuminated to know things about ourselves, but it's more than that. Our illumination is ultimately The climax of that is in Christ himself. He is the one who shines upon us. This is what makes salvation so personal. This is that when someone undergoes conversion, it's not that there's just some sort of religious phenomenon happening to them. They are encountering the risen Christ. Isn't that remarkable? They're having a personal encounter with the living God himself. It's not just some combination of mystical things that are transpiring in a person's heart and mind. You are actually encountering God in salvation. That's that's remarkable. I'm of the persuasion that regeneration is a miracle. 
And so people accuse me, do you believe in miracles today? Yes, every time someone gets saved, that's a miracle of God. That is the inbreaking of another world into our world, into your heart, matter of fact, invading your life. And uh, that's what uh, Ephesians says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, spoken in, a, spoken in a bit of a different context, but relating to this, as Paul is calling the Ephesians to walk circumspectly, to walk wisely, to, to be spiritually alert and awake, he says, awake sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. It's not just that religion shined upon you. It's not just that doctrine shined upon you. It's not just that, you know, emotion, some emotional condition shined upon you. It is Christ himself that shines upon us. And so the light that they will see is his light. Amazing. The third thing is this. Christ and his redemption will not only usher in the light of salvation, the phenomenon of salvation through regeneration, but also the experience of salvation resulting in everlasting joy, everlasting joy. Let's look at this. It says in verse 3, he says, you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness, they will be glad in your presence, and with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. This is, this is a great point for us because the, the, the fulfillment of all of this joy, all of this gladness, the taking away of all of this gloom was something that Israel saw in the advent of this child. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 25 here. Luke chapter 2, verse 25, as we look at Simeon, righteous man, and his prophecy regarding this child, we kind of come to see here the, 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 the substance of this joy even as Isaiah, who was given by the Spirit the news, the good news of glad tidings, we can say, the good news of joy, the gospel news in connection with his heavenly vision of the heavenly temple, we can say that once again the Spirit speaks on the earthly temple or in the earthly temple as he hearkens back to this ancient promise in Isaiah 9, and he speaks to another devout man of God. Luke 2.25 says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. Consolation that chapter 9 of Isaiah is talking about. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Just trying to wrestle, what does that mean? It's just kind of, you tell me what it means. He came in the Spirit into the temple. I don't know yet. I think it means something like he was in some sort of visionary rapture, sort of some sort of overflow of the Spirit in his life or his heart as he came into the temple, driven, impelled by the Spirit, kind of like when the Spirit impelled Jesus and drove him out to the wilderness. Here, the Spirit impelling Simeon, driving him into the temple so that he would have this providential encounter and meet the child in which all of his hopes and dreams resided. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms Wow. He took Jesus into his arms. 
I, that just hit me right now. I'm just doing kind of like Bible study on the fly here. But he took the child Jesus into his arms. Do you guys get a better, better picture of redemption than that? You want to talk about coming into the realization of all your hopes and dreams, and they're found in this child. He took Jesus into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Oh, there it is. There's Simeon going back to Isaiah 9. And the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at, these, at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Wow. Wish I could exposit all of that for us today, but I can't because I'm short on time. But you see here, the consolation of Israel incarnate. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, as Revelation tells us. Wherever Jesus goes, the spirit accompanies him. The spirit who, ple- who was pleased to announce Messiah's coming also endowed the faithful remnant, Simeon, with the spirit to announce his arrival and to proclaim the realization of his own promises, the promises that the Spirit himself has made. With this text from Luke, it is made clear that the universal nature of this joy is a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And the revelation which has, brought, which has been brought to us in Christ results in the fullness of joy that Peter speaks about. And this is supported by two metaphors. One agricultural and the, agricultural, and the other one is a metaphor of war. People will be glad, the gladness of a harvest, indicating the joy of substance, the joy of God's provision for our lives. In other words, that God is going to sustain us and give us all the nutrients and substance that we ever, ever need will be found in Christ. As Peter says, 2 Peter 1.3, God in Christ will give us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. We have a harvest in Christ, brothers and sisters, and the reality is in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we are prone often to think that we should see greater temporal blessings. Listen now, listen, because we're all right here. This is our lives. We all think that we are to see, we are to expect, and we are to realize greater temporal blessings, blessings of health, Blessings of longevity, long life. Blessings of marriage and family. Blessings of finances or cultural blessings where, let's say, persecution goes down, not up. When we are tempted to think that this is the sub and substance of all of our blessings, Paul actually says the complete opposite is true. And this is why Christians, if we're honest, this is why we struggle so much. 
We struggle so much because our mind is on the temporal. Our mind is on the now. Our mind is on the earthly. Our mind is in the physical. And the reality is, is that where God has blessed us most, listen to this, God's not like us. As he knows, yeah, I can bless you so you don't have cancer or you don't get sick or you don't die of a heart attack or you don't get in a bad accident. I can bless you in those things but I would rather bless you in a way that's going to last longer than that. And so it's almost as if the Lord is telling you, if it's okay, I'll leave the blessings to me, okay? I know how to bless you better than you know. And to bless you, to truly bless you, is to bless you in the heavenly places where those blessings will never end, where they can never be diminished, never tarnished by time or sin or tribulation. As Jesus said, where thieves cannot steal and moth cannot eat away and rust will not destroy. That's where our treasure needs to be. And the metaphor of war adds to this. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, this is also meant to accent the jubilation, the rejoicing that results. It's almost as if, do you understand the bounty into which you have come in Christ? the treasures that are yours, if we can just open our eyes to see that. And this leads into our final point, which is this. Not only the experience of the phenomenon of salvation resulting in this joy, but also the final triumph of salvation here cast in the language of warfare. Look at verses 4 and 5. For you shall break the yoke of the burden and the staff of the shoulders uh, on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, which my understanding is, is that's a very thorny Hebrew phrase. It's kind of constructed it in so many different ways. But, but something like what the NASB is saying here is right. And it says, the, and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel and fire. What's going on here? Well, two things. In terms of the great Redeemer's work, it's like a battle we will share in his final triumph, and that battle is likened unto Midian. Why is Midian so appropriate here? Well, there's an exegetical reason. Actually, actually there's a historical reason why the battle of Midian. It's not just some battle, God won it, you celebrated the victory. It's going to be like that. It's more than that. Because in the battle of Midian, Gideon was freeing the tribes of Zebulun, Naphtali, and Asher. The very tribes of the text here in Isaiah. The tribes that were liberated there in the battle of Midian. And so Isaiah, picking up on that connection, says it will be like Midian, remember? Which has to do with your present situation. It will be like that. And what else was the phenomenon in Midian? In Midian, the other phenomenon was this. It was that God acted in such a way as to exclude the possibility of human boasting and human credit or merit for the victory. Does that sound like the gospel? What that is saying is that we are to read the historical account of Midian in preparation for the way that the gospel works out. It is a redempt, not, I don't have time to chase this all down, but it is a redemptive historical theology of how God in deliverance 
And historical deliverance is always a prelude to spiritual deliverance. It's how God, in delivering his people, excludes the possibility of human boasting. Does that sound like Christian to you? <laughs> Does that sound like gospel to you, right? That sounds like Romans chapter 4. Works are excluded, Paul says, right? It's the, gospel, the nature of the gospel to exclude the glory of man, to, to, to exclude boasting, rather. Did I say works? To exclude boasting. No boasting. When God redeems his people, only one person can boast, and that is Jesus Christ. That is the triune God of Scripture. And that's why Paul says in Galatians, he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. And so like in Midian, where Gideon was instructed, get rid of all these people, all these soldiers and all this stuff. I want you to get rid of all these all this military stuff. I'm going to deliver you, not you, <laughs> right? And he, and he even says in the text there in uh, Judges, the, the battle of Midian is found in Judges, Judges chapter uh, 6 through 8. But in chapter 7, he, he even goes, goes on to say, because if I don't get rid of all your military, Israel will boast. That's what he says. They will boast. We did it. We, we won. We, we, we defeated our enemies and that is certainly not something that God wants his people to do. He wants to be the only one credited for salvation. Let's look ahead, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Let's look ahead for next week a little bit, sort of a, a preemptive. Look at the end of verse 7 because this is what all of this redemption is leading to. The zeal of the Lord of hosts or armies will accomplish this. It will be his doing. And as Paul says in first, uh, second Corinth, what is it? First Corinthians chapter one, I think it is. Uh, it, by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. His doing. It's not your own doing. It's not your own doing. The last aspect of this is found in that last phrase that might have given us some trouble. Verse five. What does it mean that? the booted warrior, the cloak rolled in blood, meaning like a cloak that's been rolled in blood as a result of war and battle. What does it mean that it will be for burning, fuel for the fire? It's another way of saying, God, when he comes to judge, when he comes to wage war on behalf of his people, when his victory is finished and when his triumph is done, so will war be. War will be no more. And I tell you what, just reading the news uh, the other day and watching footage, China, Russia, Iran, getting, to, getting together you know, over there in the Middle East, doing naval uh, drills together. And as an American, I'm looking at that going, well, that could go bad. <laughs> yeah, China, Russia, and Iran getting together, their militaries, what's going to happen there? <laughs> you know, I mean, how far? I mean, just tease it out to its ultimate conclusion, right? Uh, boy, I tell you, the idea that God would put war to an end is so glorious, so glorious. He will end the strife because he sits at the right hand of God. All his enemies will be subdued under his feet, and he alone will reign supreme. I'll give you one more text of Scripture, and then we'll pray. Turn with me because I'd like everybody to see this. Isaiah 35. Just remember in your mind as you're reading throughout the book of Isaiah, 
that chapter 35 is where you want to go in the book of Isaiah to see the victory, to see the joy, to see the gladness, to see the salvation of the king. You wanna go to Isaiah 35, that's when the book of Isaiah really begins to launch into the language of restoration, the redeeming of the remnant. Oh, it's glorious, it's just one glorious uh, scripture after another and verses one through four, critical to see this future salvation when the warfare will be over. The wilderness and the deserts will be glad. The Arabah, great desert, will rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. It's going to be some wimpy little church service. It's going to shout of joy. That's like if you weren't awake, now you are. Hopefully no babies will start crying because I just woke them up. But but you see what I'm saying? It's like, come on, wake up, Christians, you know? This is, this is great salvation. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will, they will see the glory of the Lord. They, the majesty of our God, encourage the exhausted. This is for you, Heritage Grace. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, Many of you in here today are anxious of heart for many, many, many things of which there is no human remedy. All earthly comforts fail to encourage you in certain areas. Those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Ugh. If we can just live in that reality... Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. <laughs> Isn't that so great? All the temporal deliverances of Israel are not only for our instruction, brothers and sisters, but for our joy as well. For just as Israel will see days in which the weary will rejoice, one day, all our warfare will be over and our heads he will lift forever. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I understand what it means to be discouraged. And I know how easy your people can go from days where everything seems to be right, circumstances are right, no major trials. We're venturing upon some new season of life that promises <laughs> bounties of great joy. But I know how easy it is, Lord, at the same time to enter into those seasons of despair where we under, undergo great dark nights of the soul, as it were, and where it seems as if all earthly comfort fails. And there are limitations to how and, and the degree to which we can encourage one another. There's only so much a husband can encourage a wife, a wife, a husband, a father, son, their daughter or son, a father or mother, daughter or son, friend, family, fellow member, 
There's only so much encouragement that we can impart to each other. But your encouragement, your joy is limitless if we have eyes to see, if we will, like the Apostle Paul says, learn to trust in Him who raises the dead. Oh Lord, we pray that You'd fill our hearts with the resurrection hope that is ever before us in Your Son Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.